Welcome to The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Listen to Joe tackle the really tough moral issues, current events, and politics from a Catholic perspective. Now here's Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Hello again, Sixpack Warriors. Welcome back to The Cantankerous Catholic, episode 208. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, and that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me, according to the regulation and uniform code of military justice. So help me God. For months now, I've harped on the need to work diligently at becoming a saint if you want to be saved. What I haven't done is tell you just exactly what you must do to become a saint. That's what we're going to discuss in this final episode before Christmas. You might want to sit down for this one. I'm going to stop asking you for gifts to support this show and begin asking you to help me get more listeners to the Cantankerous Catholic. It won't cost you anything except a few minutes of your time. The more reviews the Cantankerous Catholic gets, the more often it's displayed by the podcast aggregators when people are looking for new podcasts. Occasionally, this might cause the Cantankerous Catholic to get attention from podcast magazines the industry's trade magazine. 
So click on the link in my show notes that says rank and review the cantankerous Catholics so more Catholics can join us. Then write a short review. Doesn't cost you anything and it doesn't make me anything. It just gets more listeners for the cantankerous Catholic and makes the USCCB live it. That's a good thing. Before I dive into this week's topic, I want to remind you to send in questions for Bishop Strickland's segment. Ask him anything you want, as simple or as complex as you want. We recently received two questions from two different six-pack warriors that are so rich that we're going to make those the only questions in separate segments. They're topics that really need discussion, and we're very fortunate to have a genuine successor of the Apostles to discuss them with. Also, you've heard me run commercials about making any website you might own Americans with Disabilities Act compliant. I've made my sites ADA compliant because I can't afford $50,000 fines from the government, and I certainly can't afford lawsuit judgments that can cost a whole lot more. And there's no way to win a lawsuit over ADA compliance if you're sued. You're either compliant or you're not. So if you own a website for your business, or if you're a professional such as a doctor or lawyer or accountant and have a website, or if you operate a nonprofit that has a website, you must get compliant to avoid lawsuits and fines. There's a link in my show notes on cantankerouscatholic.com for this episode that allows you to reach out to me to help you. I'm doing this for six-pack warriors as a service. Other people who make websites ADA compliant will charge you anywhere from $4,000 to $15,000. I'll do it for $1,000 or $100 a month. You can't get it done anywhere that inexpensively. Now, let's get on to our topic of becoming a saint. I believe in what's called tough love. But it's not really tough love, it's true love. St. Louis IX was the most holy monarch in the history of France. The reason he was the holiest was because of his mother, good Queen Blanche. From the time Louis was old enough to understand, Queen Blanche would sit Louis on her knee and say, My son, I love you so much. No mother ever loved her son more than I love you. But I would rather see you a thousand times dead at my feet than to know you offended God with one mortal sin. Today we'd call that tough love, but it's actually genuine, true love, because it's a God-centered love. So when I become forceful, especially regarding morality and telling you what you need to do to get to heaven, I'm merely showing you a genuine, true love. And that true love is focused today on one of the requirements to get to heaven, doing your level best throughout your life to become a saint. The first thing you need to understand is that all I'm going to do here is give you the basics. If you get the basics down, then at that point God will lead you down the path of spiritual perfection that will be unique to you. But you have to get these basics down first, all of them. The very first basic is to get in and stay in a state of grace. For those of you who don't know what that is, it means being free of all mortal sin. There's only one way to do that. You must go to a priest for confession and receive a valid absolution. 
Don't worry about the state of the priest's soul. That's irrelevant because the sacraments work ex opere operato, meaning by the work performed. A priest can be steeped in mortal sin, but by his words, actions, and intentions, he will cleanse your soul from sin. Since the vast majority of Catholics are mostly ignorant of the faith, you need to understand that you can't do anything like pray to God and ask him to forgive your sins. It won't work that way, because Jesus didn't set it up that way. The only way your sins can be forgiven is to confess them individually to a priest in confession. As long as I'm on confession, if you're not going to confession once a week, you need to start. Working toward becoming a saint requires taking sin and confession seriously. You don't have to have mortal sin to go to confession. I can't remember the last time I confessed a mortal sin, but I still confess to the priest every time he regularly comes to our home. By confessing venial sins, you're helping make yourself a spiritual surgeon with the ability to begin excising the chronic venial sins from your soul. No one likes confessing the same sin every week, so you'll begin to focus on avoiding those venial sins. Along this line, you can't make a good confession if you don't know what is sin and what isn't. When you learn just what sin is, then you have to figure out which are venial and which are mortal. The very best book for that is a book called Moral Theology by Father Herbert Jones, a book intended to be a pocket reference for priests in the confessional. But it's out of print, and all the copies i found are about $150. However, you're still in luck. I cover sin very, very well in Secrets of the Catholic Faith. You can get yourself a copy by clicking on the link in my show notes or by going to Joe's stuff page on cantankerouscatholic.com. I strongly recommend it. I hope you like to read because one of the basics in beginning on the road to sanctity is for you to become a daily and voracious reader. You must begin reading Lives of the Saints. That's where my godfather started me, and he was wise to do so. When I was a neophyte, I read over 100 saint biographies. But why would you want to do that? Because as you read these lives of the saints, you'll begin to see a common thread in each of their lives. You'll see their unique spiritualities, what they had to go through in their daily lives that formed them, and their spirituality. You might even get lucky enough to find a saint who becomes your hero and you'll want to emulate him or her. I'll be perfectly honest with you about my experience. I read those saints' biographies because my godfather told me to and because I like biographies. But they all seemed like fiction to me because I couldn't see how I could ever achieve that level of holiness. But then one day I read a book that changed everything for me. The book was about St. Dominic Savio and was written by St. John Bosco. Dominic was one of John Bosco's spiritual sons, and he was only 13 years old. By the time I finished reading that book, I decided that if Savio could become a saint, then so could I. I didn't stop there, though. I reasoned that if Dominic Savio became a saint because of Don Bosco, then I really needed to begin reading about St. John Bosco. 
He's now my favorite saint and the primary patron of this apostolate. There are thousands of books about the saints. There are so many that you could read a book a day for 10 years and not have read them all. Many of the very best ones are out of print, so you'll need to browse used bookstores. And reading Butler's Lives of the Saints doesn't work. You've got to read the whole books about particular saints. Where you would begin looking for books such as these is at Tan Books, eCatholic 2000, Ignatius Press, Pauline Books and Media, and you can't forget about the used bookstores. I've got links for these and a whole lot of books I personally recommend in my show notes. We know a lot of saints. St. Francis of Assisi, St. Anthony of Padua, St. Teresa of the Little Flower, St. Teresa of Avila, and countless others. But there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of saints who were never recognized by the Church. When the Catholic Church declares someone a saint, that's an infallible pronouncement by the Church that the soul of that person is in heaven. Your grandma could be a saint. Your friend who died last year could be a saint. Just because the word saint isn't a part of the person's name doesn't mean that person's not a saint. Here's the last thing on reading. A big part of spiritual growth is reading your Bible. It only takes 15 minutes a day. I recommend starting with the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, with a special focus on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. When you finish with that, start over again. Then you can read Acts and the Epistles. Then start on the Old Testament, paying particular attention to the first five books of the Old Testament, which is where you discover the blueprint for the Holy Mass. I don't recommend Revelation until you've read the whole Bible. What Bible you read from is just as important as doing the actual reading. There are only two Bibles that I recommend the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition, and the English Standard Version Catholic Edition. Never use a Bible having a title that begins with the word new. They're all bad, no matter what the USCCB says. Now that we have the reading out of the way, prayer has to be focused on. The absolute best sort of prayer for the individual Catholic is impromptu prayer. That's just having a conversation with God in your own words. Be respectful in your impromptu prayer, but speak to God like he's your daddy. After all, that's how Jesus referred to him when he called God Abba, Daddy. The perfect prayer is the holy sacrifice of the Mass. If you're in a position where you can go to daily Mass, I highly recommend it. In the Mass, you're witnessing the representation of Christ's sacrifice on Calvary. Besides, Jesus is really and physically present for you to talk to. The prayer of the church is the breviary or liturgy of the hours. Priests are obligated to pray the breviary every day, but the laity are encouraged to pray it too. I began praying the breviary back in the 90s. Believe me, you can't put a price on the benefit. At the very least, you need to do a morning offering as well as the rosary and acts of faith, hope, and charity. Oh, and pray for our Pope. I pray that he receives the graces of conversion and repentance. 
After you've done all these things and made them a part of you, you're almost ready to launch into your own unique spiritual path. There's just one more thing to do. It's time to find a spiritual director. Now, I strongly recommend that you get a good spiritual director. Be careful about whom you choose to direct your soul. Just because a man's a priest doesn't necessarily mean he'll make a good spiritual director. Some are priests in the world who aren't faithful to the church's teaching or their sacerdotal vows. But I'm not too worried about you seeking out one like that as a spiritual director because most priests aren't like that. Indeed, most priests are good, holy men who take seriously the teachings of the church and their priestly vows. But you still have to be careful, not because they aren't good priests, but because they might not be equipped for the task. Not all priests are equipped to be spiritual directors. Most aren't trained for it, and among those who are, most haven't been trained in classical spiritual direction. Priests who aren't trained, or have been trained in this modern psychologically-based mumbo-jumbo, might possibly end up having the opposite of the desired effect and cause grave consequences for your immortal soul. That's not the intention of the priest, though. It's just what it is. In addition to avoiding the sort of priest just mentioned, I wholeheartedly recommend you to avoid asking a nun or layperson to direct you. There may be some very good ones out there claiming to do spiritual direction, I'm sure, but your best bet is always a priest because a priest possesses the sacramental graces of holy orders. The age of the priest doesn't matter, only the degree of apparent holiness. My spiritual director has only been a priest about eight years, but he's a very holy man who is well-versed in classical spiritual direction. And under no circumstances, let anyone get away with telling you the old ways of spiritual direction don't work anymore, that mankind and the church have advanced beyond those archaic ways. That is a pile of baloney. Times may change, but man is the very same as he was when our first parents gave us original sin, and the church is only a mere 2,000 years young. Besides, how many saints do we produce today with the so-called new ways? When classical spirituality and direction were at a peak, hundreds, perhaps even thousands, of saints came flowing out of the church. If classical spirituality was good enough for the likes of St. Teresa of Avila, St. Anthony of Padua, St. John Bosco, and innumerable others, it should certainly be good enough for you. Because you've laid a foundation with the things I've told you in this episode, working with a spiritual director is where it all begins to come together. God will take your new knowledge and mindset to work through the spiritual director to begin a journey that can only be called yours. Everyone's is as unique as fingerprints. Sometimes your spiritual director won't understand what God is doing with you, but he remains an intricate part of this process nonetheless. But what if you can't find a spiritual director? That's entirely possible, you know. Don't worry. I was once without a spiritual director for nearly 20 years. I learned that God won't leave a serious person an orphan. He'll undertake your spiritual direction himself. It's just a lot more difficult. 
Now, you've got everything you need to become a saint, so put it to use. If you have questions, I'm only an email away. Let me know how you're progressing from time to time. You've heard my commercials about my bulletin insert program for parish priests to subscribe to so their parishioners can learn the Catholic faith. The only problem with this program is that the vast majority of priests either don't care about relieving their flock of their catechetical ignorance or they're too cowardly. Either way, these inserts do no good if they don't get into the hands of the people. Well, I've found a way to get each one into your hand. I've renamed these small articles Secrets of the Catholic Faith, and you can get one into your email inbox every week from Substack. It only costs $5 a month or $50 a year. Just click on the link in my show notes at cantankerouscatholic.com. It's time for the Sacred Heart Wins with Bishop Joseph Strickland. Each week, His Excellency answers your toughest questions about the Catholic faith, the problems in the church, spiritual questions, catechetical topics, or anything else you want to know. If you have a question, just email it to joe at cantankerouscatholic.com. Now here's Bishop Strickland and Joseph Pack, the Every Catholic Guy. Hello, Six Pack Warriors. Here we are again with the Sacred Heart Wins. We're talking to Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas. And uh, gosh, we're just going to dive right in as soon as I find out how His Excellency is feeling today. How Doing are you good, feeling? Joe. Thanks. Okay, great. Let's jump right in. Mary asks Can a bishop stop the priest from facing ad orientum? <laughs> Well, um, <laughs> yes, I mean, the bishop is the chief liturgist, and so he can, you know, he has the authority to tell the priest what to do. Um, you know, I, I mean, if that's that's the simple answer to the, the question that Mary asked, is that, yes, it falls under the authority of the bishop to make that kind of decision. As I recall, Excellency, back in the 90s, there was uh, a case out of the Diocese of Birmingham in Alabama where the bishop was telling a priest he couldn't face ad orientum, and he challenged it to Rome, and Rome ruled in the priest's favor that a bishop cannot stop that anymore. Are you aware of that? No, I'm not. Um, that's certainly, I mean, uh, uh, that may well be the case, but typically, you know, the, the bishop would have the authority, but, um, if Rome has said he doesn't, then certainly that kind of answers the question. Well, it, uh, I, I don't know that that could have been reversed since then. That was under, uh, JP two, obviously. And, uh, and I, it was, uh, gosh, it was Cardinal Ratzinger who made the eventual ruling, I think, or at least wrote the letter to the bishop. And, uh, you know, under Francis, who knows? But yeah, I followed the case closely at the time because I was in Alabama, as you know, and, uh, it was pretty significant. I, I recall EWTN, uh, running some news things on it. So, 
Uh, okay, our next question is from Deb. She asked, what is the key element in St. Ignatius spirituality? Good question. <laughs> well, you'd probably get a lot of different answers to that, and I'm certainly no expert in Ignatian spirituality, but I know a large part of it is discernment of spirits. Um, from what I understand, I did do an eight-day Ignatian retreat years ago. So, But I think that a strong current of discernment of spirits and using the, the prayer forms that St. Ignatius offered to uh, really discern what the Lord is calling us to. Yeah, I uh, as a Marian catechist, I'm required to do the 30-day Ignatian retreat every year. And uh, for those of you six-pack warriors who haven't taken that retreat, uh, <laughs> wow, it's a life changer. It really is. Uh, for anyone who's able to take a 30-day leave of absence from work or whatever, uh, if you can take one with uh, a retreat, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, director, uh, you know, for someone to lead you through it, it is it is a life changing thing. Of course, you can always get the book and do it yourself. Uh, and I think there's some resources online, but uh, even the eight day thing that Bishop Strickland did. It, it it really is healthy spiritually. Yeah. Uh, okay. Sarah asks, and this is really a good question that I think a lot of Catholics are confused about. Does the blessing of holy objects such as necklaces and scapulars ever wear off? Do they need to be re-blessed such as after getting wet? No, the blessing doesn't wash away for sure, um, and it it really wouldn't need to be re-blessed. Whatever the if it's been blessed, it's been you know it that doesn't wear off in a sense. Um, the blessing of of articles really is a reminder that we live in a, a supernatural world, and Amen. evil and good are constantly. Um, really in battle. And that's the whole objective is to to choose the good, to live in the light. And that's what the blessing of, of objects uh, really is about. But it doesn't wear off. Um, and it, you know, it certainly wouldn't hurt to have something blessed again. But, um, you know, it's not something that expires. Right. For those of you who are enrolled in the brown scapular of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, whenever you change from one scapular to the next one, the blessing automatically transfers to the new one, so you don't have to have a brand new one blessed, although I typically do myself. But Okay, gosh, Excellency, that's really... I wish this phone would stop ringing. Uh, <laughs> that's... Uh, that's really all for this week. This is a real short one. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm happy to have the discussion with His Excellency for you six pack warriors. But, uh, until next week, I guess we'll sign off. Is that all right with you, Bishop? Sure. Thanks, Joe. 
Okay, see you later. Help this apostolate while you help yourself. First, check out what I have for sale on cantankerouscatholic.com on the Joe's Stuff page. I have books, coffee mugs, and t-shirts. Your purchase helps this apostolate. On the episodes, blog, and about pages, there are Catholic Amazon items in the sidebar. I change those offerings every week now. When you click on those images, as long as you shop at Amazon after doing so, this apostolate gets a small commission on everything you buy. Please help this apostolate while you buy whatever you're going to buy anyway. I am hard, but I am fair. It's time for the Catholic Boot Camp with your drill sergeant, Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy. Learn the Catholic faith and how to defend it like you've never heard it before. This boot camp is tough, so there's no political correctness, no spirit of Vatican II, and no namby-pamby platitudes. Drill sergeant Joe Sixpack, the every Catholic guy, will prepare you for spiritual war. Now here's Joe Sixpack. One day my wife was having a discussion with one of her friends who just happens to be an anti-Catholic Protestant fundamentalist. When the topic turned to the Most Holy Eucharist and Communion, the lady dismissively said, that's cannibalism. Her reaction is wrong, sounds crude, and is an insult to any Catholic listening, but that reaction is actually as old as the Eucharist itself. Before I craft an answer to her accusation, let's begin by defining the Catholic understanding of the Most Holy Eucharist. Catholics in communion with the Church believe that Jesus gives himself, under the appearances of bread and wine, fully and completely. He is truly present in his body, blood, soul, and divinity in order to give himself to the Father for our salvation and to give himself to us as divine nourishment for our souls. In other words, the Most Holy Eucharist is Jesus Christ himself. Belief in receiving the Eucharist as cannibalism is older than the Eucharist itself, and it's found in the Bible. Let's look at excerpts from the sixth chapter of St. John's Gospel. The sixth chapter of John's Gospel, verses 22 through 24, shows the crowds gathered around Jesus the day before seeking him out at a different place. When they told him they were seeking him out, Jesus cut right to the chase so he could go directly to his message. Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, a reference to miraculously feeding 5,000 of them. Then he went on to tell them that he will give them a food that will not perish and will lead to eternal life. The Jews were incredulous that he said he would lead them to eternal life, that he couldn't possibly top manna in the desert. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He went on to explain through verse 40 that he was the bread sent from heaven by the Father. Up to this point, Jesus' followers understood him to be speaking symbolically, but he took that misconception right away from them. 
He went on to tell them that he was the bread they would have to eat to inherit eternal life. Here is where the misunderstanding of cannibalism came in. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. Now Jesus' followers understand him to be speaking literally. He said, My flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. The word indeed made this statement imperative. Plus, he prefaced his statement with the phrase truly, truly, which he always used to emphasize the importance of what he was about to teach. It's no wonder that Jesus' followers became indignant as they were repulsed because they thought he was talking about cannibalism. After this, many disciples drew back and no longer went about with him, according to verse 66. If they misunderstood Jesus by taking him literally, why didn't he stop and explain what he really meant? Since this all dealt with eternal issues, didn't he have a moral obligation to explain himself? Every other time they misunderstood him, Jesus explained himself so there would be no misunderstanding. Why not now? Because Jesus meant to be taken literally. It's just that they thought he did indeed mean a literal cannibalism. But that isn't what he meant at all. Peter handled it the way the others should have. When the others decided it was wise that they no longer went about with him, Jesus turned to the apostles and asked, Will you also go away? Speaking for the twelve, Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, what Peter was saying was that he didn't know how Jesus was going to do what he said, but he knew it wasn't going to be an immoral act like cannibalism and that Jesus would expose it in his own good time. Peter wasn't to be disappointed. In Luke twenty-two fifteen, Jesus said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Imagine that. Jesus knows he's about to die, yet he earnestly desires to eat his last meal. If you were on death row knowing that you were about to die, would you be anxious for your last meal? Certainly not. That would be insane, unless you were about to do something infinitely more important than your impending death. And that's what happened. The first Mass was said, and Jesus fulfilled his promise when he said, This is my body which is given for you, in Luke twenty-two nineteen. He completed it when he said, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, from verse 20. Far from cannibalism, Jesus gave us his real presence in the Holy Eucharist. Our detractors tell us John 6 and the various accounts of the Last Supper are merely symbolic. Are they right? Let's see. After talking about the Last Supper and the Mass in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote, 
Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now if the Eucharist is just a symbol, how in the world can you profane the body and blood of the Lord and eat and drink judgment on yourself? To receive communion unworthily is a mortal sin of sacrilege, in addition to the sins that made you unworthy. By the way, this is why it's enshrined in both canon law and the catechism of the Catholic Church that you must be free of mortal sin before you can receive Holy Communion. If you don't know what mortal sins are, you'd better learn. It would be dreadful to learn about them when you're standing before God for your judgment. So you decide. Are Catholics cannibals because we receive the body and blood of Christ and Holy Communion, or are we receiving the greatest gift ever bestowed on mankind by a loving God? Have you ever really explored the Cantankerous Catholic website? Did you know that I have six of my own books available there? Did you know that I have t-shirts, sweatshirts, and coffee mugs available? You can accomplish three things when you buy some of my swag. Your purchase helps to support this apostolate. You'll have something to display that says you're a six-pack warrior. And you'll look just plain cool. How many Catholic apostolates can make you look cool? Click on the Joe's Stuff tab at cantankerouscatholic.com today. Let the world know you're a cool six-pack warrior. church is 2,000 years old. A lot of wisdom is gained over two millennia. Each week we'll share some of that wisdom with a Catholic quote. So here's this week's Catholic quote. This week's Catholic quote is from St. Peter Julian Imard. He said, when we work hard, we must eat well. What a joy that you can receive Holy Communion often. It's our life and support in this life. Receive Communion often, and Jesus will change you into himself. I believe a really great way to teach the faith is through stories, parables, and anecdotes. So here's today's story. Benedict Arnold began his career in the Revolutionary War as a thoroughgoing patriot. He is praised for his courage in the attack on Quebec. He led his troops up the heights of Quebec and planted his flag on the Plains of Abraham. He won more and more praise for his bravery for other battles and was commended by General Washington personally. But when five officers of lower rank were promoted over him, he became discontented. This discontent grew and didn't stop even when Washington gave him command over the fortress at West Point. 
He made arrangements with Major Andre to hand over the fortress at West Point to the enemy without firing a shot. Andre was caught and the plot discovered. Benedict Arnold escaped and took shelter in England. He lived a lonely life, despised by those whom he'd betrayed and not trusted by those to whom he'd betrayed them. He died a lonesome man. Strangely enough, he'd always kept his American uniform. When he felt that he was dying, he put it on, and these were his last words. Let me die in this old uniform in which I fought many battles. May God forgive me for putting on any other. You wear a uniform, too, a uniform of a Catholic. When you were confirmed, you became a soldier of Christ. The Holy Spirit still strengthens you against the dangers of salvation if you turn to him for help. In your uniform, you must do everything that's necessary to better defend the Catholic faith. Don't betray your uniform by sin and carelessness in the practice of your holy religion. Alas, the majority of Catholics are modern-day Benedict Arnolds. Hell will certainly be crowded. This has been The Cantankerous Catholic with Joe Sixpack, the Every Catholic Guy. Thanks for subscribing, and be sure to visit cantankerouscatholic.com to get your free copy of Joe's popular book, The Best of What We Believe, Why We Believe It.